Okay. Okay. Now we're dealing with the Rambam's Morning of Bochim on Sunday morning, nine four, I believe. Six six. Nine six. I lost two days. Okay. <laughs> nine six. Kedavotai. Up to this point, we made the very clear statement that the Rambam has a need to write this book. He needs to bridge the gap between those who are committed to their religion and yet have philosophical questions about that religion. And it's obvious. The Rambam is obvious. What's, what's obvious at the Rambam's position? What's obvious is that the Bible itself, the Torah itself, presents us with philosophically impossible statements. What do I do with those statements? As, for example, in the most obvious case, and I use this because it's an innocent case, the innocent case is anthropomorphisms, which means attributing to God physical characteristics. Or more sophisticatedly, people less comfortable with this, anthropopathisms, which means attributing to God emotions. Now, since we're all so sophisticated, we all feel very comfortable attributing the lack of attributing to God physical characteristics. God has no eyes, no nose, no mouth, no yada hazakah. Good. Do you feel to the same degree of comfort when I say that God has no emotions? That, Eli's right, gives me a little bit of pause. Does God have emotions? Does God indeed get angry, intensely angry. The word haron af means flailing nostrils. That verb. It's what a woman does when she gives birth. Trembling. Flailing nostrils. Does God, doesn't have flailing nostrils, does he get so angry? God's sad unto his heart. We use the term depressed. Does God get depressed when I do the mitzvot? Or, Joy. Does God feel joy when I do the mitzvot? So, the Rambam would see these terms in the very same way that he sees the terms regarding anthropomorphisms. He sees them same way anthropopathisms. Both are denied of God. One second. So, that's an interesting question. But that's the key issue. The key issue over here is how do I philosophically make sense of a biblical text which I see as holy and kadosh and God-given? So the Rambam says, I am writing this book for that person who needs to bridge the gap between the philosophical truth and the religious truth. Point number one. Updating this discussion, one might raise the very same question in science. How do I deal with that science student who has learned and studied that the universe is 13.7 billion years old, on the other hand, I have Shavuot Yemei Same exact question. I am religiously committed to Torah itself. I certainly am. Always have been. On the other hand, all of a sudden I'm in college and I'm reading all this about 13.7 billion years old and I'm also reading about evolution. I don't see any evolutionary evidence in the biblical text itself. So I am perplexed. Had I rejected either of these two, I'm not perplexed. I reject science and philosophy, not perplexed. I reject a biblical text, I'm not perplexed. Many people have fallen on either side of these. Those who accept Torah, no science, no philosophy, they're fine, they're not perplexed. Those who accept science and philosophy and no Torah, they're not perplexed. The person who's caught, the Rambam wrote this word, this work, for those who are caught in a tense moment of that confusion, what do I do now? Rambam says, I have to write a book for that person. But, can't write that book. Why not? 
Because in authoring this book, I'm going to be revealing the depth and truth of what the Torah is really all about. And the Hamona'am, the masses, cannot deal with that depth or that absolute truth. Can't deal with it. How do I do it then? One more second. So what do I do now? What do I do now? So I have to write and not write at the same time, or I have to reveal and conceal, or conceal as I reveal those truths. Eli. So how do you explain the voice of God? The the voice of God, people hearing the Ten Commandments, they say they heard the first two commandments. Moshe heard the Good. How, Good. How do you explain the, now that they... Imagine it, perceived it. I know that, that's a hard time for me to. Okay, work it's on. not a question really for right now because we're dealing with well, so something. It's one of his. It's, it's, Correct. It's, it's a God has. Okay, good. So I will deal with it because I love you. So I'll deal with it for about twenty seconds, but then I'll go back to my topic over here. But it's a legitimate question. This is, it's a morning of theme type it, it, of question. It's, 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 and of course, what you should be doing over here is just getting the book and opening up his index and seeing where he deals with that issue. But. To put it in a uh, more succinct fashion, if you don't have a better copy than this of Morena Bukhim, but it's very nice to have this copy, well, and you can't bother this, nobody bothers this. I lost a friend because I wouldn't loan out this book. David oh, no. watches, I love it, I want to read it, I said you can't bother this. Well, what is special My notes. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you can tell them to take your copyright. My notes, my notes, my notes. So I have 40 years literally of notes on this, and I date them. So, you know, when I read something then and I rechange it now, literally 40 years of notes on this. It's just, it's just beautiful. Just, I love just looking at it. It's just great, you know. So when I, when I wrote, read a certain section, different color inks, <laughs> it has red, blue, pencil, green. It's all there. So it's just very important to date when you see something and what it's about. So I, David Duck went to borrow and he says, I'm just taking it home. Uh-huh. It's a block away. No. It's only one block. I'll guard it with my life. One block. Two off. Your life's not that precious. Sorry, but this is more to it. Only kidding. Only kidding. His life is that precious. But he, I lose friends for that. Because I don't loan out certain books, I don't mind loaning out. Okay, take it, fine, bring it back. Oh, good notes, replaceable. I don't know, it's not a problem. But this is very precious to me. Very precious to me. Okay, good. So the answer to your question is the following. So Ajigaon and the Rambam disagree as to what is the meaning of the word call, voice. It's a very important point. In Devarim, in the opening chapters of Devarim, you hear that term that Hashem uses a voice. So Aja. Gaon understands that phrase as Kol Nivra, God created a voice. God manipulated the airways, airwaves and created a voice that people actually heard, a physical voice. Whereas God created a voice, Kol Nivra, he called it record. Ram says no, Ram says that God communicates telepathically, That's mentally. God creates the voice in your mind. You think you're hearing your voice, really you're only hearing a thought. That's what I thought, but that doesn't, doesn't, sound, doesn't sound right to me, only because the people said to Moshe, I can't handle it anymore. Because I couldn't, the their brain's it. exploding. Of course I can't handle it. The brain is exploding with the massive sound or thought. The thought is what's exploding. Because ultimately, all physical voices are translated into our brains, into an idea or a concept. So that's the way those two will solve that particular problem because both are de-anthropomorphists. Neither one is happy with anthropomorphic statements. Saja, of course, and the Rambam, of course, as well. So they both deal with that particular issue in their particular fashion. Good. 
Okay, so that's that issue. So now we have to write this book, and you have to write this book in code. Now, the question is, is the Rambam writing in code? So he says to you, I am writing in code. And I will give you the source and interpretation of the code if you read me very carefully. If you read me very carefully, I will tell you I'm writing in code, and I will warn you that when you think I made a mistake, don't you dare correct any one word, because every word is perfectly placed. So this we know, this we understand, this we've seen before. And how am I going to write in code? Well, I'm going to do the same way that the most perfect book was ever written, which was in code. Namely, Torah itself. So I'm going to use terms that have multiple meanings. Terms have multiple meanings. Such that, when you're a certain age or level of sophistication, you understand one item. And as you advance, you understand, oh, that's what my parents met, meant when they said that to me. Let's say your children ask you, where did I come from? Kids five years old, six years old, you're not going to tell them about the birds and the bees. And hopefully you won't use birds and bees, because those terms wouldn't make sense to a kid. But you say it in a way that the child understands at that moment what it is, but not the full story, because that's not nice. You might use the term, people love each other, they create a child. Did you say anything false? No. But you didn't say anything about the physical reality which kids can't handle at that point. So what do you do? You say something that's innocent at that level and as they grow mature they say, oh that's what they meant. They meant physical intimacy. And then they get it. So, so too the Torah itself will use terms on multiple levels. Obviously, I will go down and see whether or not they really did anything. The people of Sodom and Amorai. Does God really go down? Does He really see? No. It's a metaphor. It's a mashal. So the Rambam begins by saying that I am going to explain all of these mashalim, all of these terms, all of these words. Words are a great vehicle by which one can communicate a message on multiple levels. Which he must do. Because he's writing that which he should be doing with oral communication. This is called a ma'amar. This book. It should be oral. And in oral communication, I can modify my statement as I go along, as I see you're handling or not handling it. Let's say I'm in a high school classroom, and I'm talking about, let's say, evolution, and I see kids going crazy because their third grade teacher says, we didn't go from eight, there's no such thing, it's all stupid, it's all nonsense, if you think it's foolish, you can't believe in that. But we know there are 100,000 facts that fit into the evolutionary theory. Now, you're in high school, but I watch the kids and I see they're starting to smoke. Can't be. They're calling out. What are you talking about? My great grandpa was a monkey? Is that what you're saying over here? But on the other hand, now, if I were direct and I were to say to this person, but 93% of your genetic matter is the same as the field mouse. And 97.2% or 98.2% is the same as the gorilla. It's the same genetic matter. Yes, it's 2% differently, but you're the same genetic matter. You did emerge from this. And the kid starts holding his head. I can't hear this. I can't understand this. And I'm going to the principal. And you're in big trouble. I'm telling on you. You don't want to experience that. Because it goes way beyond the classroom, goes to the community, goes to the, across the tracks, goes to other places. You don't need this. So if you speak as you see the reaction, the kid that says, I'm getting something new and different now, and I hear it, I absorb it, 
fine. The kid that is, has the smoke coming out of his ears has to be spoken to differently. So how smart are you as a teacher that you're able to speak on multiple levels without being obscure or confusing? Or, for example, we all know, let's be a little more closer to the home, that if you were to study Mishpatim, section there called Shorshenagah, the goring ox, happens to be exactly a text lifted, sounds like, seems like, Hammurabi's code, which preceded Torah's code by 500 years. Hammurabi's code, Amrafil is Hammurabi. Abraham is about the 19th century, which is the 13th century, give or take, whatever it is. Same lift. To the extent where I copied out Hammurabi's code, the page on Choshagah, gave it to my class when I dealt with this five years ago, on Saturday, after, Saturday afternoons, winter, summer, and I said, okay, read it, where's this from? Mishpatim, <laughs> what's your big deal? It's the same thing. This happens, oh, kill this one, do this one. It's, there's a three or four little differences that they didn't even get. They didn't get notice that. That I took it out and said, no, this is Hammurabi's code. Now, that's a very scary statement. You may be comfortable with evolution, you're certainly not comfortable with me saying that Hammurabi's code is parallel to Moshe Rabbeinu. So what do I do with that? So there is two issues now, pedagogically. Number one is, how do I understand to begin with? I'm perplexed by that. Number two... I have to deal with that in terms of my students. So, I have to really figure out, this takes us time as a teacher to figure out who are your students, what they understand, what they absorb. In graduate school, it's no problem. In college, it's somewhat of a problem. But how do you deal with this? In high school, it's all the more problem. So you might say, don't even deal with it in high school. But I do know that they're going to deal with this in college. So then, I have to prepare them. I have to give them an answer to this. I have to give them an answer to the fact that you have Gilgamesh epic was the same thing as the Mabul. And in fact, I have a word in the Mabul, Kofir, that tar or pit that you put on the thing, which does not appear anyplace else in Tanakh, but appears in Gilgamesh's epic. What do I do now? It appears in Gilgamesh's epic, that word doesn't appear anywhere else in Tanakh. You have a lot of strange stuff going on over here. What are people going to do about this strange stuff? So at the end of the day, I have to... Speak to those kids who are not going to go to college in one way. Those who are going to study this at an advanced level and deal with it in a certain fashion. So I might say, Torah spoke in a contemporary idiom, which means Moshe Rabbeinu, brilliantly as a pedagogue, used the very same modalities and examples that people already knew and familiar with. That's wonderful. So the people did not receive this strange, bizarre document but rather we see something familiar in order to change them bit by bit. So Ayn Tahad Ayn is exactly what you might find in Hammurabi's code. So Moshe Rabbeinu used the same. Or Sekilah Sekilah Founded in the ancient Near Eastern times. Do you have any question? Why do we have Sekilah Sekilah Very strange means of punishment. Burning, stoning. Why have that? I asked Rabbi Salabachik this question. I said, Rabbi, 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 is this possible that this really is rooted in ancient Near Eastern material? He smiled, twinkled, says, oh, so you found out. Quote, unquote, that's what he said. So yeah, Torah used that which they were comfortable with. They understood that this criminal act or this sin should get this particular punishment. It made sense to them. But then what happens? The rabbis understood Torah does not want to do ayin tachat ayin. And may not even want to do sekasar hagvechenek. And rather, the Torah, through the 
rabbinic instruction taught the people what the truest meaning is. We don't do cut off her hand. We don't do that ever in that particular context in dividing. We don't cut off a person's hand because she did something terrible in the midst of her husband fighting somebody else. But the rabbis have the key in order to reveal what the depth of Torah is about. So it's the same point. Whether it's an issue of biblical study on an advanced level, academically, or it's in science issues, you're dealing with a classroom, you want to prepare your students, they have to know what's going on, and my daughter has the same issue, which she teaches at NYU, they have, she's doing things academically, she's doing Bible, what do you do with it? She has a shield flap, which kids coming to her class at NYU, and she's a TA, what do I do with it? Very serious, very difficult issue, how to keep them traditional, but teaching them the material that the professor is talking about. Multiple levels. Rambam, same issue. So all that we understand. So the Rambam says, I'm writing in code. We got it. Let's just look at this very quickly. I want to get to the contradiction part in one minute. But this, beginning. Page 15. If you wish to grasp the totality of this treatise contains so that nothing of it will escape you, then you must connect the chapters one with the other. So he has to connect chapters. He's giving his instructions. When reading a given chapter, your intention must be not to understand the totality of that subject, but also to grasp each word that occurs in the course of the speech. This is called a speech. It's not called a written work. Interesting. I, you should emphasize that. In a Hebur, which is what the Rambam refers to, it's a written work. It is. It's frozen. It's, I say what I mean. Now I am speaking my written word, I'm watching, so to speak, because in the written word, I could watch your reactions, and when your ears start to smoke, when I mentioned 13.7 billion years, or about Hammurabi's code, then I just quickly, very subtly, change the topic. I don't want you to walk out of here without having a commitment and a full understanding. So if I see that you can't handle this, what do I do? I will very subtly, imperceptibly, change the topic. So you don't get wigged out. That's what a good teacher does. But that's a verbal speech. This is to be understood as a speech, not the written word. Clearly, that's an important point. Good. Even if that word does not belong to the edge of that. So now what? What are you saying to us over here? I wrote this. I want you to grasp each word that occurs in the course of the speech, even if that word does not belong to that chapter. So what's he doing over here? He's going to put a bizarre word that does not belong to that chapter over here. You must take note of that bizarre word. Wow. Now, I emphasize this because the Ram is telling us how to read his work. Similar to if you were to be writing a letter to a Jew in the Soviet Union and you're dealing with the stock market, let's say, and all of a sudden you said, stock market's going down, we're very upset about it, capitalism stinks, the worst system in the world, because you have to get through the censor, remember. The censor's going to read your words. So capitalism is the worst economy, terrible. You know, but, but the sun is shining. Nelan went Hadoli. Why are you talking about the sun is shining when you talk about the stock market? So the censor will say, well, I just put in a word about the weather. You want to read it very carefully. The premise is that people that read very quickly don't read very carefully, but intelligent readers see that all of a sudden there's a red flag there. And that red flag means, read me carefully. Intelligent writers, and it'll tell us over here, that, don't change one of my words. You think, oh, he put over here about sunshine. It was a mistake. Didn't really mean it. No, I mean it. Every word, even if that word does not seem to belong. But the diction of this treatise, diction, the spoken of this treatise, has not been chosen at present, but with great exactness and exceeding precision, and with a care to avoid failing to explain any obscure point. Nothing has been mentioned out of its place, except with a view to explain some matters in its proper place. 
You should therefore not let your fantasy elaborate on what is said here. Don't read into me. Eisegesis means when you read into an author. Do you ever read into an author? Always. Right. Well, right. Correct. What does he really mean? Do you know how many times any author, written or verbal, is misunderstood? After yesterday's derasha, I got five people all who got different understandings about it. For the five different people. And nobody got it. Sorry? Nobody got it. They come with their own baggage. They come with their own, oh, he must be good at saying about this or that or so that. And then I, and it happened that I went to visit Jack Hittery and, and uh, the, Abe was in the middle of telling him what I said. So, I, so he says, I don't want to say anything now. No, no, I want to hear what you said. What did you hear me say? It was fascinating. So but that's reality. That's reality. Agreed. Yes, yes, that's exactly correct. Well, at the end, how do you clarify to the point where you get your message across? Write it down. Well, but okay, but then, but then, I'm afraid to write it down because then, a people can still read into the written word, and they may, they may uh, also fix my message when. Maybe I don't want to fix my message. Maybe I should. Maybe I should only speak to a particular audience about a particular topic in a particular fashion. Once I write it down, it goes to everybody. It's not yours anymore. It's not mine, mine anymore. Correct. So maybe I don't want to write it down. Not everything that you think should you write. The Rambam's walk. He didn't realize that literature becomes the nature of literature is to be. Oh, he's much smarter than you think. So he he has no flaws. I'm sorry to say. Whoa. We better talk about this over dinner. You don't say Rambam's flaw when you have dinner with me. There is no flaw in the Rambam. On one hand, he was aware of how it was going to be of how he misunderstood. Worried about that. But on the other hand, did he have any? Maybe anybody who writes can't even imagine. He imagined. Work can be totally deconstructed throughout history, and there was he knew it. He says it's going to happen. He says it's going to happen. The question is now we're still studying this Andrew years later, and interestingly, you raise an interesting point. Did the Raman fail at what he tried to do to reveal and conceal? So David says, of course. Of course, he failed. David says, of course he failed. Because he wanted to conceal, meaning that nobody should have a problem with it. But many people had a problem with it. Yes, but it's 850 years later. And what if the Rambam had a long-range view of history? Which means this book has to last a thousand years for the philosophical elite as well as the Hamon. So I'm willing to suffer the setback of a burning... Of the book, because I know that the intelligentsia will preserve it and get it, and a thousand years later, David Dayan will read this book and he'll get it. So, give me a model for that biblically. Where is God willing to tolerate setbacks? Chorban ben Hamikdash. Always. Always, correct. Why? Why Because it's a failure for God. He destroys ben Hamikdash once, twice. What are people saying? What do the pagan world say when? Was destroyed. Hashem can't handle. What does Moshe Rabbeinu say? Mayim no. Rumitzrayim. So that was a great argument. Mayim Rumitzrayim. They can say that you failed. You killed him dead. You couldn't handle. You couldn't do it. So the, the, the argument worked in the midbar, but eventually it didn't work. Okay. So, but so God says, I'm willing to suffer a setback by the Jewish people thinking Hayesh Hashem bekebamim ayin. Is God with us? He can't do it. He can't handle it. Okay. You must learn the broader level of sin equals punishment. And punishment means horban. You must learn that was Avdazrash, Kudamim, or Sinat Hinam. Learn that lesson. 
and I will experience temporary setbacks in order that you get the broader down the road message. Two thousand years. Two thousand years. Mm. Till we get it. Okay, correct. Okay, good. You so argue that all the Nivim, Right. So not understood by his own audience. Exactly. And then he failed, but what's the but over here? We still read it. We still long term view. So, so you could argue that he has the greatest impact on the next three generations. Absolutely. Good. Yeah. Next, next underline. Yeah. That throws you off totally. Okay, hold on. So at the end of the day, David, I would say the Rama succeeded. So they burned it temporarily, you're right, but the Rama at the end did it. So let's go further now. Burnt it anyway? I'm sorry? They would have still burnt his books. Yeah, whatever. Yes, of course. So but the end, he knew that it's going to end up preserving the Jewish people. He must reveal these secrets because otherwise that philosophically trained person will not remain true to the cause. So it was worth for those Hamona'am burnings for that one, he says later on, for that one person who gets it and preserves it and carries it to the next generation. So here we are, 850 years later, we're still studying it. Profitably. We're loving it. And people are still writing 600 page books on it. It's astounding. And people are still Davidson. misunderstanding it. And there's still a machlokot. Davidson comes out strongly against the Straussian esotericism of the Rambam. Strauss says the Rambam is all about hidden teachings and contradictions. And he says it. Davidson says, you went too far. I didn't find any contradictions. Straight, it is what it is. Don't give me all this contradiction business. He's not trying to hide anything. They're still arguing about it. You're right. All the greatest minds are arguing. But now... Is it terrible for the Rambam to argue about it? No, it's preserving a legacy. It's not ignored. It's not forgotten. Sa'adji wrote clearly, but who? five people read it. He, these, the greatest minds of the Jewish world are still arguing about the Rambam. What do you say? So even that is preserving it for the next generation. So the idea is to preserve Judaism. Torah, mitzvot. At the end, one could arguably argue that he succeeded which is good let's go a little bit quickly now you should therefore not let your fantasies elaborate don't think don't read into my words your fantasies you're rather you ought rather to learn everything that I ought to be learned and constantly study, constantly study this constantly you would then elucidate for you the most you most of the difficulties obscurities of the law Torah if you read it again and again, that appears difficult to every intelligent man. You're intelligent, you read about it, these are difficulties. No. I swear by God, every reader of this treatise of mine, not to comment on it, single word. Right. Don't you answer, don't you say anything. And not to explain to another anything. You'll get it wrong. Except? It is save that which has been explained and commented upon the words of the famous Sajjah of Allah who preceded me. Right, so, 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 so only what the, what the rabbis have said before me. before me and you find over here comment. But whatever the rabbis did not say that's safe. Whatever the rabbi said about whatever that's safe. But what about if nobody said something before me it says close your mouth. Yes and get my message. Don't explain The contrast is don't, between but, but, but don't explain it to anybody period that's right exactly because that's my radical teachings should not be communicated by you to the other does he mean that? yes he's saying it's not to another no 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 don't, my radical teachings that which you've learned by Hachamenu and what I quote over here for example is a very good example of that 
because we used it two weeks ago. In 2.8 of Morena Bukhim, in 3.14, he makes this great point about science and religion. So I used it two weeks ago, and of course Slifkin is, got, is getting uh, cut up because of this particular issue. So in defending Slifkin doesn't know this. He doesn't know philosophy, he doesn't know anything about this stuff. He doesn't know this. Okay, it's a shame, because this would be defending him. So I defended him. So the Rambam over here... Rabbi came about science and religion. This is a zoologist, whatever he is. So, it's interesting. Here, the rabbi said this. First Binyan. So the rabbi said this over here. The rabbi said that in matters of science, then believe Hachmei Omot HaOlam. Pesachim. Sadiq Dalad Amun Bet. We read it, we learned it. The rabbis had a difficulty about the sun, the stars, what revolves around. What? Rabbis conclude at the end, after all the proofs are given, What does that mean? They're right, we're wrong. So in matters of science, Rambam says over here, Ahmed Tamud already admitted it. So I need to bring the Rambam. Sadiq Dalit, clear statement, two or three different examples, they're right, we're wrong, end story. So in any issue of science, the Gemara says, <coughs> using Pekavot, there's wisdom, there's knowledge. They got it, we're wrong. Now, his book was banned and burnt, Slifkin, because he said the rabbis of Talmud were wrong. But the Gemara says that we were wrong. The Gemara says it, so what are you yelling at him for? It's clear. And the Rambam, if you need some spice for this, the Rambam says, in matters of science, we don't follow the rabbis. In matters of medicine, I had another source. Matters of medicine, the Talmud was wrong. Well, the Talmud says that if you are a pregnant woman and you may miscarry, wear a certain kind of a stone. The Gemara Masechet Shabbat. Was it Lamed Vav, Lamed Zayin? And there was one woman who in the class who wore the stone. I remember. I said, who'd wear a stone like that? Interesting. I forgot, but good, interesting point. So, Rabbi Abraham says, Rambam says, quoting of Haigaon, we don't follow the rabbis in matters of medicine. Doesn't work. It's not been proven. So it's not me saying this, but it's saying what Slifkin said in the book. So what are you burning his books for? What's ironic and fascinating is that Rambam knows these gemarot. may not know Rabbi Abraham. I don't know if he knows Rabbi Haigaon and what he says about medicine. I don't know if he knows that. He knows the gemarot and Edrin and gemarot Besahim. So, why is he burning this book when he's saying with the Gemara? That's a fascinating question. Probably not the masses. For the masses. Okay, good. Yeah. Masses, yes. And people told him what's in the book. He says, all this stuff over here. Okay, good. So at the end of the So at the end of the day, it's a fascinating modern refraction of what went on over here. So I had the first Minyan class to defend through three different issues. Let's say you interpret a midrash allegorically. The Midrash is not literally true. People will burn, not only the book, you too as well. I had the same conversation with different people about the Besekhamiglat of Zayn, about the famous guys, Rabbah, Rav Zeta, eating on pudding together, drinking together. He got up, he shechted him, he died, he felt very bad about it, he prayed, he resurrected. Great story. And they still believe her. And certain people from the other side say that's literally happened. I said no. And Abeno Abraham says this did not literally happen. It's a metaphor, meaning. Don't drink too much on Purim. Mm-hmm. Didn't really die. He fainted perhaps. Did Shechtim maybe gave him a wound. But I'll explain this all metaphorically. Why? Because it's not rational. So again, I gave all those examples where one should 
be very careful about banning books because the Gemara itself and Abin Abraham himself and Abhai Gaon itself all explain all this in a very rational it, it, fashion. It the point about, I said, you know, an animal, half animal, half vegetable, half can exist. Referring to the, the lights, the lice, the kinim? You're referring no, to? No, no, no. Half animal, half vegetable, a, tr- a tree. There's a something in the, in the, uh, in the writing that they say. That oh. But half, a, a thing is half animal, half vegetable. So Slifkin brought it out, you're saying? And it can, can no, no such thing exists. Yet, some guy can't, you know, they, somebody, somebody saw the, you know. Okay, you have to figure out what he's talking about in that case. Okay, so back to the Rambam. So the Rambam over here says to anything the rabbi said, quote, quote beyond, Sahim, all that, no problem. But anything that is not in the works before, that's my Hidush, don't quote me because you won't get it right. Don't try to communicate it. Good. Sorry? What are we doing here? <laughs> right now. Okay. So turn your page. The Rambam is going to now use A, words. B, parables. Torah uses parables to hide its true teachings. A parable works on multiple levels. Gan Eden, perhaps, as a Rambam sort, is a parable in part 2, chapter 30. He sees that as a parable because snakes don't speak. It's a parable. So therefore, it's a very powerful parable. It's a great parable. I think parables are wonderful. It communicates a core message of free will, of rebellion, of temptation, of consequences for your actions. All of that is a parable, but the message is great. Dressed in a parable. It's great for third grade, for tenth grade, for adults. Parables work. So what I use parables, Ram use parables. Good. So he'll hide his message through the use of terms and use of parables as Torah does. Good. He will also tell us now that he will hide his message through Setirot. Look at page 17 now. Through contradictions. Now, again, I want you to we'll read this. Against the backdrop, we will then do Strauss who shows you the contradictions and David says, there's no contradictions. To this very day, you're going to find people who see the Rambam as an esotericist, which means that he is writing esoterically with a hidden message. And Davidson who says, no hidden messages. Just to read for a second. Again, Davidson is a master scholar. He's a Shavet Torah Mitzvot, happens to be. It's interesting. And... What do you say? Sorry, what? That is Shavet Torah Mitzvot. I thought you might want to know that. No, no, why do you say it's interesting? Where does he teach? Yeah. UCLA. He's retired UCLA. He almost came to... It's interesting because... Uh, interesting because he, uh, when Altman... Alexander Altman, who was the, the master, the master in the entire world of Judaic literature, Alexander Altman, all this stuff is extraordinary. Brilliant mind, man, everything. Very special person. Was going to be also the chief rabbi of England after World War II, but because he had a thick German accent, he was banned from the position. He had escaped from, where he was, Hungary at one point, Germany, and ended up in Berlin, and ended up in England, and he was, because he's, he's the man, Judea Sefer, Posek She'elot, philosophy, Agada, whatever he writes is wonderful. And I had the incredible zechut of studying with him for two years when he was still at Brandeis. And then we had the school of falling asleep in his class, which I still have not lived down. <laughs> Very unusual man, just a Ishaish Kolot, fantastic personality, whatever he writes is just incredible. Perfect scholar, things proven, clear, lucidates, amazing man. So when he retired, 
he, he retired. It was, it was, we had one of the wonderful experiences of uh, going to his house for, for uh, once studying. He went to his house, went to his house. His, his wife is this pristine English woman, tea and crumb kits and all that stuff. Just oh, a very cool. nice experience. It was really very, very meaningful to me. And very sad when he passed away in the late 80s. So when he retired, they're going to either give the, this, this is a, 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 the top university, the top program in the country at that point in time, to either Davidson, who's a master person, or to Alfred Ivory who's also a master person. He's a, two PhDs, one in Arabic literature, Arabic philosophy, and he was raised in Brooklyn at Ohel Moshe. Ohel Moshe. He was a Sefer, his father was a Sefer, from Guy, the father. And then his, his uh, sister is somebody, E. Um, Billy Ivory, who was on the board of Yeshua University, gave millions of dollars to Yeshua University, fascinating person, but he was no longer Shimon, so he was conservative. So it's interesting that our direction as graduate students was directed by whom they chose at the end. Because you're a graduate student coming in, how, you know, how the professor reads text, what it communicates of religious values, subtly was of great significance to us, especially the Yeshiva University people. We were the first group of people that took from Yeshiva University. Because prior to that, Nachum San, for example, believed that Yeshiva University can't study Bible properly, can't study graduate properly, because we're all press role. If it was about about yeah, so right. Here. So then they took three or four of us because Marvin Fox said they could do it. He's both Son and Fox are Shemitah Ramitzvot, but Fox believed that we could handle the tensions. Son said they cannot. So it's an interesting issue. If you're too from, you just can't read the text properly because you're too rooted that. So it's an interesting way that it worked out at the end. Fascinating. So at the end they chose Ivory rather than Davidson. And that he's Torah Mitzvot, 100%, from Guy. On the other hand, Ivory was not. So that does shape who you are. When I was thinking once of writing a particular dissertation, and Ivory, uh, whatever it was, sneered at me, sne- literally saying, so you want to find some kind of relevance in the tradition? That's not academic. You want to be like like Eliezer Schweid, who simply just uh, finds meaning, and that's what you Yeah, that's what I'm about. That's what I'm here. That's not academic. That's not PhD work. It is about truth. It's about it's not about finding yeah, meaning. It's about not from kind. You're finding from kind in graduate school. Nobody's right. He's not it's academic. Blind, it's blind design. I'm sorry. Whatever it may be. As you, you see the world. Whatever. Correct. Okay. So, so now the blurb over here on Davidson says that Davidson's impressive accomplishment is to have situated my mind in the context of his life and of two cultures that were his, rabbinic tradition and that of medieval Arabic philosophy. Challenging, widely held interpretation of my mind as an esoteric writer, Davidson resolutely depicts him as a thinker who believed what he wrote. Maimonides emerged as a thinker who consistently upheld the intrinsic unity of philosophic and scientific investigation and the revealed truth as transmitted by scripture. Can we do examples of this? Sorry? Can we do examples? Of what? Exactly what he said. Something that he and disagrees with Strauss on. Yeah, I'm going to get to that. Next year. No. Today. 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 Yeah, the, and there are many of them. So, here's the... So here's Strauss. Okay. Okay. Uh, we'll see it. Uh, we'll give it Strauss in one second. So we're not, we're not going to read all the types of contradictions. Right? Okay, just give just the Rambam says. Okay, good. The Rambam says over here. There are seven types of contradictions. An author, you reading an author, and all of a sudden you see a contradiction. Why? He blew the call. Forgot what he wrote. 
intentionally put a contradiction because sometimes you have to be simple before you get complex. So you assume a certain simple statement and you follow along that simple statement in order to come to your conclusion. And then later on you say, that now that you understand what I'm talking about, I'll change the premise. For example, let's say, they don't argue about this, but let's say... That's what he uses. Which one? This one that you Yes, 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 yes. Two. Yes, two. Yeah, three and five. Okay. So there are seven types of contradictions. Right? Seven types. Okay. So he tells you, I'm going to contradict myself. Don't say, see we got him, let's change him. Don't say that about the Rambam. I intentionally will contradict myself in three out of, in numbers three and five out of the seven that we have over here. Right? Uh, for example, the fifth cause arises from the necessity of teaching and making someone understand. For there may be a certain obscure matter that is difficult to conceive. And one has to mention it or take it as a premise in explaining something that is easy to conceive. And then, by rights, ought to be taught, you don't have the rest, before the former. So I explain the simple and I got yourself and I go to the former. Okay, good, got it. Let's say I want to prove God's existence. Right? Okay. Now, I'm going to prove it with the best proof that I have. Let's call it the cosmological argument. That's Aristotle's proof of God's existence. Cosmological argument means that you see in your natural experience, Aristotle based on nature. In your natural experience, everything that you see has a cause and effect. I am here now because my parents caused me to be here. And their parents caused them. Or if I threw a ball and broke a window, the ball breaks the window because I threw it, because my arm thought it, because my brain thought it. Everything is cause and effect. Right? Cause, effect, cause, cause, going back to the beginning of cause and effect. Now, in Aristotelian science, there is an eternal universe. It always existed. It's never not existed. I'll tell you why in a second. And therefore, something has to be the first cause. That first causes God. Right? Now, if I assume an eternal universe, I mean, there's an eternal universe, but I cannot assume an infinite regression back of cause and effect all the way, all the way, all the way. It has to be a first cause. Under Aristotle. Aristotle. So the Rambam wants to prove God's existence, that there's a prime mover, or a prime cause, or a first cause. So he assumes the validity of Aristotle's premise of an eternal universe. In part 2, he gives you the 25 propositions from which he's going to prove God's existence. And he assumes, for the purposes of that argument, it's an eternal universe. But of course we believe in creation, he says. Right? But he writes a whole long dissertation about Aristotle. Aristotle and the eternity of the universe. But we believe in creation. So now that's interesting. What does Ram really believe in it? Really believe? He tells you in 2.25 that God has no body. I've proven it philosophically. And all the Pesukim that talk about God's body, I'm reinterpreting. Now Aristotle said that he proved eternity of the universe. I don't think so. He didn't prove it. He didn't really prove it. And I could prove it and prove it because he repeated it three times. And a proof does not need three recitations. If 180 degrees equals a triangle, I say it once, I proved it. Why should I say it again and again and again? If I say something again and again and again, it means you know, I didn't really convince you. I don't really believe in it. So therefore it can't be. If I say it so many times, it didn't really believe it. So because Aristotle said it so many times, 
He didn't really believe it. Therefore, we can believe in creation. So at the end of the day, what is the Rambam really saying? If I view the Rambam exoterically, what is what you get? And he explains that contradiction. Similarly, similarly, the Rambam will say that the infinite absolute God can have no direct cause on the physical finite universe. God's beyond time. He cannot influence time. So God's beyond time. So how does he influence what goes on over here? How was there any Matan Torah Har Sinai? If the Rambam believed in this Aristotle, God is a perfect being that is all natural. He's a naturalist. So if God is a what the, what Aristotle says, and he didn't have Matan Torah because God cannot intervene in time. All of the great philosophers of the medieval of the Enlightenment period were deists. John Locke and Hume. God created a perfect universe that goes ongoingly. You want to tell me that God has to intervene and correct the mechanism? That's a flawed God. Couldn't be. God just created and left it and it works perfectly so. That's Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. They're all deists. God created something perfectly and it all worked out very nicely. End story. Very good. So the Rambam will say things in one place as they say something else in the other place and what does he really believe? So let's look now at Strauss for a second and just for one second page 72 where he talks about some of these contradictions. Okay, so this is page 72 and 73. Okay, give those out and here's the next page. This is page 2. So now we'll talk about the contradictions. So the Rambam uses contradictions. David says there are no contradictions. David says it's all straight and clear and simple and I can explain all those contradictions. Strauss says, no, a contradiction will tell you, a contradiction will tell you that which I want to hide. I will say the obvious Hamona'am teaching publicly, I'll broadcast it, then I will very quietly say something else that only the careful reader will get which contradicts the Amon Am. So let's look at Strauss for a second. Now, good. Return to my mind on page 73. First, fourth line. Return to my mind's use of contradiction. One may assume that all important contradictions in the guide may be reduced to a single fundamental contradiction between the true teaching based on reason and the untrue teaching emanating from imagination. Uh, emanating from imagination. Give a copy to Eli, please. If there's an extra one, that you give it to him, then share. Somebody from down there. No, you, you, you two, two, you guys share. Right? But whether this is to be the case or not, we certainly need to answer the general question. Which of the two contradictory statements is, in each instance, could to be a true statement? Right? So there's contradictions, which is a, that answer would be the guide for understanding Maimonides' work, provided by identification of the true teaching with some secret teaching. In other words, the more radical teaching is the one that is the secret, true teaching. The more open, obvious teaching is the not true teaching. Or does he ever say that it's the it's like teaching Midrash. for the Hamon Ha'am? Yes, exactly. It's still true, it's for the Hamon Ha'am. It's not true. It's not true. It's, it's not true. like Midrash. Similar. 
Correct. Consequently, of the two contract statements made by him, the statement which is most secret must have been considered by him to be true. Secrecy is, to a certain extent, identical with rarity. What all people say all the time is the opposite of a secret. It's open. We may therefore establish the rule that of the two contract statements in the guide, in the guide or in any other work of my mind, is a statement which occurs least frequently. One second. We have to first finish. Or even which occurs only once was considered by him to be true. Now, he himself alludes to this rule in his treatise on resurrection, which we just finished doing in the first class. The most authentic commentary of the guide, when he stresses the fact that resurrection, though a basic principle of the law, is contradicted by many scriptural passages and asserted only in two verses of the book of Daniel. So he almost so now is resurrection true physical resurrection true or not true? Is physical resurrection true or not true? Does the body physically resurrect? Is the question. So the Rambam was of course challenged when he doesn't mention ever physical resurrection. He speaks about spiritual resurrection as Ulam Haba. And that Avad challenges the Rambam in a Chotashuvah that he doesn't really believe in it, the Rambam. The Rambam does not believe in physical, physical resurrection. And the Adrama, ten years later, he doesn't really believe in physical resurrection, he doesn't mention it. So this destroyed, in the Maimonidean controversy, the Rambam's whole standing. All the great Rishonim, the Avad, and Yadrama, that we studied to this very day, said this man does not believe in physical resurrection. So Rambam writes, he says, I believe in it. I believe in it. I do believe in it. I really, really believe in it. <laughs> but does he? But does he? So that's a very interesting point over here. And when we read over here, the Ram says in the very last chapter of this, he says, look, in this last chapter he says, this essay is Hamona'am. The masses. And they've had to expand and write about it a lot, openly. And he says to us over here, listen to this, this phrase. Okay. Chapter 10. He says, This. Repetition. Expansion. Expansion. Where I try to explain, but I'm not really adding anything. It was only composed for Hamon. For the Hacham, if you're wise, the Hacham only needs a word. So if I told you that I wrote a whole book for the masses, should you take it as his true teaching or not? The wise person needs a remiza. But I wrote a whole book for the masses. The work in which he says, I do believe in this, is a mass book. <coughs> for the masses. The Hacham, Guess what I mean? Only bit in Miza. One second. But Asher Perakim. Asher Perakim. Right? Em Farashim Lacham Venshunim. You don't have to explain anything to Hacham. Here I explained it. Hacham got it. Without explanation. He got it. Simple statement. Venshunim Lacham. You don't repeat again and again and again. That which you say again and again and again is for the Hamon. I believe, he said, again and again and again in physical resurrection. So my note when I first read this 20 years ago, he is protesting too much that there is nothing new in this work. Now, here there's something new. What's new? That I believe physical resurrection. That seems to be new. 
But he's saying, I said that in all the other books. But she didn't say that in any other books. There's no place he said, and I'll give you the exact phrase, when he says this following line. My, I told Charles, I was saying this throughout the summer, the first Minyan class, throughout the entire week. Here's a phrase, he says, Ele ashidakumu I'm saying, I believe there will be those who will resurrect Lithiyah. You, you will be Hayim Gufaniyim Aruchim. Will be physically alive. Said so Charles, do a search on the Rambam and tell me, does he say that ever? We went through in this class, Pirusha Mishnayot and Sanhedrin. We went through his Chomilachim. Talks about Tchatemetim. What does he mean by that? Physical resurrection? Or spiritual resurrection. That is, when a person dies, does he spiritually resurrect? Moshe Rabbeinu is now spiritually alive? Or does he physically die, stay dead and buried, to Yomot HaMashiach, and then he physically resurrects? What's the status right now, Moshe Rabbeinu, Sekhmi Yaakov, and all the great righteous people? Are they spiritually alive, or are they waiting, waiting in the ground? What is the truth? So, Charles could not find any other place. We read all what was relevant. Chot HaShuvah. The Rama. Rama. Does the Rama over here in Mishneh Torah, Hechol Melachim, Chot HaShuvah, does he ever mention this phrase? And he says, there's nothing new in this book. I said, this, I said what's in this book all over the place. Does he have any place that says, So he doesn't. So, this is a book of repetition. It's what I said every other place. But every place she didn't say what she said over here. So how do I understand this? So that has been an ongoing debate for the last 800 years where people like Strauss will say, you see, I've proven my point. And what will David do? Say, say no, he believes in it. Oh, really? But what about... Wait, right, I'll tell you. So now, well, I'm reading it through certain eyes. So now we look at the last point over here. He says, look, According to the Rambam, those who are perfect in knowledge, is enough for them. They don't need any duplication. That's Hamon. When I duplicate, it's for the masses. It's not the real true teaching. I have to explain it a lot. As I did with all these profound issues in Morenevochim, Heburenu. Now, so he says to us over here that I did what I did here in Morena Bukhim. But in Morena Bukhim, he never mentions Tchatemetim. Any kind, anything. Not even spiritual? Not even spiritual. It's not an issue of philosophy. So, methodology. Wait, so the question is is he saying, you want the truth about Tchatemetim? Look at Morena Bukhim. He says, it, says it very clearly. Meaning, Ele. What's Ele referring to? Possibility number one. As I, deep issues. They're all in Sefer Morei Nebuchim. So that means, Tchatemetim is in Morei Nebuchim. But it's not. One possibility. The other possibility is what you just said. That when he writes over here, as meaning, not Tchatemetim, but in other Profound issues. My methodology was I mentioned it briefly in Morena Bochim in Remiza. So is he referring to this word Ele refer to Kalimetim? It could, but it's not here. That means doesn't believe in it. Physical resurrection. It's not like he's telling you to read between the lines here too. I'm sorry? He's telling like he's telling you to read between the lines here too. Right. Without the whole big introduction. But still read between the lines. Correct. So it goes both ways. 
So, so is the Rambam a believer in physical resurrection or not? That's the question. Okay? Good. So, that is one issue. Let's, now, Strauss says, to him, it's obvious. It's a, it's a contradiction. He might say, over here, I believe in it. I really, really believe in it. But that's Hamona Am stuff. Where's the real stuff? Here. He doesn't mention it at all. I believe in it. Doesn't mention it. Silence. What do you t- to conclude with that? So if you are a No, this he finished in about 1188. Finished in 1192. This is a commentary. One, Strauss says, there's the best commentary on this is this. Because he tells you methodologically how I write. Nuancedly. Now, the question is, who am I? Am I a Straussian or a David Didzian? Do I... So, so Strauss has a lot of great points in this book. But is it absolutely true? Did he go too far? For example, if you look at chapter 7 and 14, he deals with only about people, human yes. beings. No, Rambam and Moran Vachim. Part 1, chapter 7, 14. And there's a Yad HaChazakah, which is 14. And there are 14 Shurashim. So he raises the question, why does 7, 14, and 14 is a multiple of 7, and Yad HaChazakah, Shurashim, 14, Shurashim, why is it so prominent in the Rambam? What does Yad have to do with it? So he, has, he tries to figure it out. Why certain numbers repeat endlessly in the Rambam? Mm. It's an interesting question. Yad is about Yish and so So you go, he, yes, he deals with this here. Don't just finish over here. So there. So his point over here is, he alludes to this rule in the treatise on resurrection, which we just looked at. The most sense of the content and the guide. Which is the fact that resurrection, <coughs> though a basic principle of the law, is contradicted by many scriptural patch- passages. So, we have resurrection is a basic principle, but many Pesukim say, no, you're dead and buried. Eeyore of Kohelet. That's one reason why Kohelet was going to be buried. Contradictory, right? Because Kohelet is going to be banned, uh-huh. and not, uh, it's going to be banned because it, it contradicts the Torah itself. It says that you're dead and buried. Kohelet. The rabbis want to not, in Masechet Yadayim, Perek He, Perek Bav, says, we're going to get rid of Kohelet, Yechazkel, and Shirashirim. Right. Why Kohelet? Throughout Sotrim Zedzeh. He contradicts. You say it in Tefillah. I mean, you say it in Tefillah. Every day we say it. Every single day you say it. And when you say it every single day, and I was always upset about this, Pastor. We say it over here. Look at this. He called Maseno Toho. All we do is nonsense. It's Kohelet. We are nothing. We're like animals. Animals dead and buried. But is not Kohelet. That's the rabbi's comment on that. So till I found that Diuk, I said, wow. Kohelet in numerous places denies any meaning to this life, to resurrection, all that. And there are places, if you go through, where the Rambam says there are many persons that contradict it. So you have Daniel, which says, you'd bet, Rabim, Mishneh Afara Aretz, many who sleep in the ground, Yehyu, Olam, they for a eternal life, and the others for Lahaye Diraon, which means shameful life. Daniel, you'd bet, says to us over here, El that day, Pasuk Aleph, Yamur Michael, Sar Gadol, he'll stand up out, Al Bnei Amicha Israel. Good. So then he says, "For a beam, many mishneah not us those who sleep in the ground yet keep shall resurrect. Ela haye olam for eternal life. The ele and others 
for a shameful, painful existence. That's it. Those who are wise shall shine like the firmaments of the heavens. They'll live forever. Okay, so now we have one pasuk which asserts it and many which deny it. So he says this over here. The resurrection, though basic principle, is contradicted by many scriptural passages that deny it. And asserted only two verses of the book of Daniel. He almost pronounced Ruba Tukin and the trees mentioned that the truth of the statement is not increased by repetition. The truth is not increased by repetition. Just find one source. Just say once. So what happens when he repeats something again and again and again? Does that add more truth to it? No. Exactly. Macbeth. Nor is the diminished by all this failure to repeat it. You know that the mention of the base world of unity. So you see the Ram proves that. He's saying by the basic principle of God's unity is His word, the Lord is one. Hashem was repeated how many times in Torah? Once. Does it ever bother you that that pasuk, which is the most important pasuk, is not mentioned ever in Morayin Abuchim? You ever notice that? Shema Yisrael is not in the book at all. 30 years ago, I told you 30 years ago. Really? When you were babysitting for Sarah. But doesn't he say that's the essence? That's the essence. It's never mentioned over here at all. Easy to find out. You just look in, look in, the, um, in the index, in the book of Devarim, whatever, chapter 6. The index is comprehensive. The Shema Yisrael is Ibayat Hanan, chapter 6. It's the exact pasuk. Where is it? Right over here. Um... Shema Yisrael is chapter 6, Pasuk 4. 6 4, correct? 6 4. So we look over here. Tivarim, chapter 6. So here, on page 577, he says, he makes reference to it. It's in the footnote. In 577. But he doesn't mention the whole Pasuk. Right? So we look over here. 18, footnote 18. He only mentions the first part, not the whole part of it. Right? I would want it more mentioned, more fully expanded, not just a short abbreviated part of it. So what does it say there? What words? The Lord is one. Okay. Not the whole Israel Lord, Israel Lord, Lord, but only the Lord is one. I so I would have, the Lord God is always one. So I would have wanted something more expanded. But as you said, that's the essence of everything. God is unity. Mention one I mean, little... He person. says that Rambam says that. Of course, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting, but I understand why. Why? Because does that phrase really capture God's oneness? No. No, it's a statement. It's a phrase, statement. How do you get God's oneness? It has to be flashed to you in a momentary understanding of what it really means. Does God say this or does Moshe say this? Moshe says it. So that's the human perception of the oneness of God. It's a human statement. Because really we cannot truly capture the oneness of God unless you're a prophet and you got it in a flash of insight and then it becomes dark again because really we don't understand the absolute metaphysical oneness of God. We can't really get it. So now that's of interest to us. So what the Rama says this is very important. Let me just finish one more second. <coughs> to sum up, my mind teaches the truth not plainly, but secretly. That is, he reveals the truth to those learned men who are able to understand it by themselves and at the same time he hides it from the vulgar. The problem is no better way of hiding it than through contradictions. Consequently, my mind is, next page please, makes contradictory statements of, about all important subjects. He reveals the truth by stating it and hides by contradicting it. 
Now the truth may be stated in a more hidden way than it is contradicted, or else it would be accessible to the vulgar, to the Hamon. And those who are able to understand by themselves are in a position to find out the concealed statement of the truth. So if you understand the contradictions, you understand the truth. That is why Maimonides repeats as frequently as possible the conventional views which are suitable to and accepted by the Hamon, but pronounces as rarely as possible contradictory, unconventional, or radical views. Now, a statement contradictory to another statement is, in a sense, its repetition, agreeing with it in almost every respect and differing only by some addition or omission. omission. So if the Rambam omits something that he should have said, you say, why? Why do that? Therefore, we are able to recognize the contradiction only by a very close scrutiny of every single word, however small, into statements. Now, did the Rambam tell me to watch for every single word over here? He said, watch for every single word. We just read it. So contradictions are the axis of the guide. They show in the most convincing manner that the actual teaching of that book is sealed. At the same time, reveal the way of unsealing it. Well, the other devices by Maimonides compel the reader to guess the true teaching, meaning parables, meaning multiple words that have dual, triple meanings. The contradictions offer him the true teaching quite openly in either of the two contradictory statements. So does Ram believe in creation or an eternal universe as Aristotle taught it? He says both. Does the Rambam view in God as the author of the natural order or an involved biblical God in historical process? So I could show you contradictory statements of all of these issues. And the question is, what does he believe in? The one that says less is what you're saying. What Strauss says, not I me. I would suggest, correct. I would suggest most, most authors, national authors, have contradiction, but at the end of the of the of the writings, they state what the last what the correct item is. In other words, you contradict one two one two. Then you, then the last statement he makes is the correct statement, and then you have to rationalize why the differences occur. Give me an example of an author that, that contradicts himself intentionally, other than the Rambam. Seems logical. Most authors do not contradict unless they're writing. Because they're persecuted. If you're a persecuted person, which he was, in his lifetime, from 1188, he is persecuted. By the Ravad, no less. So, so therefore, he's aware. And he has now 15, 16 more years. And he revised Moreno Bochim. Till 1198, 1199, we have statements that he kept on revising it. But that, that, that's what author writes. He's, he's presenting his ideas. And his ideas are being formulated as he writes. When he comes to the end of his writing, his formula is all clear to him, and he writes the the the. Uh, but doesn't he revise? He, he, uh, he revises, yes. Okay, so he shouldn't have any contradictions. He has contradictions, even though he revises. But but the the last statement is is probably the true statement. Perhaps. I, I, I don't do that. It, you know, it just depends. It depends. Depends what he what maybe if he believes that some people only read the opening and last chapters. Like me. Okay, so then he's not writing for you. <laughs> So, if you're pers- was he persecuted? Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you have to write artfully? He tells you, we read the opening line, he's writing artfully. And he's going to do what Torah does. Through parables, through hit double meaning words, and through contradictions. Where's, where's the biblical contradiction? That's impossible. I may say, Lord Atem called Timunah. 
You didn't see anything physical in Devarim Perek Dalav. Esh Ochlahu. Is that same Torah? Same book of Devarim? Does it say Esh Ochlahu? He's a fiery consuming? You didn't see anything in Har Sinai. You didn't see anything. You did see something. You didn't see anything. Contradiction. That's one that just comes immediately to mind. So what do you do with that? The thunder, the smoke, and all that stuff is... No, no, that might have happened, but it's not Hashem, not God. Does Moshe ever refer to God, or does God ever refer to God in any way? Shemot, Lamed Gimel. Lord Ani Haadam Bahai. See you next. I'll see you back. We see the princes of Israel and the end of Mishpatim. We see that it says. Right. Well, over here. Atzilei Bnei Israel. Lo shelach yado. Ve'achlu va'yishtu. Ba'iru. They saw. Right over here. A second. Okay. Good. Right over here. Look at this pasuk. On one he says, God did not send his hand out against them. They saw God. Hashem says they didn't see God. Is that a contradiction? In numerous issues, you're going to find contradictions. The Torah itself has to relate to Hamona Am as well as to the philosophical elite. Sudan says, I'm going to use that methodology according to Strauss of contradictions in order to reveal and conceal. And that which is most rare is my true opinion, is what Strauss says the Rambam says. And then I'm going to put, to protect myself, the open. And most people won't get the contradictions. They'll see the teaching that's repeated again and again and again, that I believe in creation, I believe in prophecy, etc. Does Ram believe in supernatural prophecy or natural prophecy? Natural. Natural prophecy, which is anybody could become a prophet if you're intellectually and morally perfect. But then he talks about supernatural prophecy, where God chooses a person. But he says God can't just choose any old person because the person has to be pro- properly prepared, intellectually and morally, etc. So he analogizes. Prophecy to creation, and he gives me all different opinions. Aristotle, Plato, all of that. And I last time quoted this other famous statement over here where he says, I have precariously where God used the sheleg, the snow from other Kisekavod, and he used that eternal matter to create the world. Which exactly corresponds to Plato's understanding of creation or of eternal matter. But then he says, but I don't know why he would say such a crazy thing like that. Right, but it's precariously Right. Why precariously is it when you don't even agree with it? So, it's an endlessly fascinating book because it has all, and there are many, many more, and again, Strauss puts them all here on the table, contradictions regarding, regarding uh, creation, regarding prophecy, regarding divine providence. Divine providence. His contradictions regarding the secrets of the Torah. Because he says, secrets of the Torah too. to the third part, Right? It talks about, about his Sitre Torah. In 350, it talks about it. And in 135, here are the secrets. And they don't correspond, the two lists. Look up 135 and 350. They don't correspond. Different secrets of Torah. Is that a contradiction? Not a contradiction? You want to solve this. And again, interestingly enough, the Mephashah Rambam did in fact try to figure out how to correspond all of this. They're not Straussian. 
but they therefore left the contradiction. So what do I do? It tells you, I'm going to contradict myself. So they spin wheels endlessly trying to figure out what's the Rambam yeah. all about. David. Okay, so I'm, t- I'm having a little hard time with this because so I read a part, and maybe I didn't understand it right, so let me tell you what I understood. Please. So he, he spends this many pages saying, okay, he's trying to prove God's existence. And he says, first, I'm going to prove it to you with the premise that the world is eternal. Because right. many people do that. and, and Aristotle does it. Aristotle and all the philosophers. So I'm going to prove it to you that way because if I prove it to you that way, then I'm good. And then after he does that, he goes, okay, now I'm going to prove it to you assuming yeah. that the world was created. Okay, so now... It, may, it worked for me. That was okay. Like, it didn't bother me. I buy that. It didn't seem like a contradiction to me because it's, okay, he really wants to prove his point from all points of view. So are you looking at that as a contradiction? No, because that he tells me is not a contradiction. He tells you, I am going to prove it based on this premise. So that would not be the contradiction. It's just say it's a contradiction? No. No, I don't think that's a contradiction. So there's other places where he talks about eternity and creation. Yeah. And then yeah. And other places you see. And he quotes Aristotle's position and he questions it, but did he really, did he really prove it? Pro- so again, in the, one has to go through the text very carefully, but at the end of the day, again, Strauss does it. And the question is, you convinced by Strauss or by Davidson? Or or somewhere in between. He's in between. I'm in between. I think the Rambam is too subtle, too nuanced a writer. On the one hand, on the other hand, I read Mishneh Torah and it's a lot of strange, hidden truths there as well. So he reveals it. He reveals it in Mishneh Torah. Does the Rambam believe in Korbanot? That's a question. You said absolutely. What do you mean by belief? What do you mean by belief? That it's good. We have them. We're going to always have them. That we're always going to have them. Yes. No. So no. Mishneh Torah says yes. Moreno Bukhim seems to, seems no, no, to no. say no. No, no, no. He doesn't say no. He's, he gives Where? the rationale Where? why. Hashem and and are we going to need them? Are we going to need them later on? Does he answer that Does Abraham believe in prayer? If you want to read a great article, which you should have read, you read it by Fox on prayer. You cannot change God's mind in prayer. Goes against little, it goes against this whole thing here. And you read the Fox brings you chapter and verse where God cannot be affected by your temporal musings and they'll quote the Rambam in 332 which says that does God really want your prayer? no to you what's praise of God? your silence it's like fool wake up what do your words mean? your silent meditation of understanding God's world that's the greatest praise not telling you God how wonderful you are great you are you walk into a magnificent house. Oh, your pictures are nice and it all matches. You're very pretty. Or if you say, what's more praise? When you praise verbally or when you just take it all you in and what? say... When you notice each detail, I think that's more praise. In someone's house, if you notice each detail, I think... And what about all that you missed? At least so you're showing you noticed... I know it's five out of five. The that five out of five million details. That's praise. No, means you can't describe it. It's a negative thing. It's not a positive. Yeah, I can't exactly. No, the Rambam says that to you, oh God, silence is praise. When I realize I can't even praise your house enough, if I tell you. It's so overwhelming, I can't say enough about it. So one guy walks in and says, I can't say enough about it. It's astounding. I'm breathless on the one hand. That guy says, oh, nice pictures, nice kitchen, nice living room, nice bedroom. Who's saying more praise? First guy, second guy. Uh-huh. 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 So, 
Uh-huh. So it's, 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 it's certainly a fascinating conversation. So what? So in Fox's article, he spends 20 pages telling you how God cannot be changed by your praise or your request. God's beyond all that. It's the famous philosophical conundrum that Eliezer Berkowitz in his article on prayer begins and he mentions and says. What does he say, Berkowitz, in this article? He says, philosophically, does God know I'm sick? Yes. Can God change my sickness? Yes. God chooses... Does God know what's best for me? Yes. So why are you praying? God knows you're sick. God can't change your sick if He wants to. And God chooses not to. So what do you pray to change God's mind for? Why are you trying to change God's mind? He knows you're sick, can't change it, and chooses not to. Why are you praying to get better? Wait, so go back to what the Rambam says. So, wait, wait, let me just... So therefore, Fox in his article, on prayer... Throughout all the Moran Nebuchim, God's a natural being, God does not intervene in the natural order, all of God's miracles happened before Beit Eshit, you know that famous teaching in Pekei yeah, okay. that the Piaton was yeah. created, and all Yamsuf happened, all that was pre-planned. Yeah. So he said, God didn't intervene in the natural order, but rather God set it up, it's going to happen. When the Gnesil happens to come to Yamsuf, the wind's going to blow, and it's going to split the sea. So God does not intervene, it all is pre-planned. Okay, good. So, Fox in this article goes on and elaborates for 10 pages, 20 pages, to the very end and says, so why did Ramam pray? So that's like telling a deer to me. Yes, of course. Correct. So you read read this article and you go through the whole entire story. So the answer is, because God cannot, will not, does not, etc. What, what does this mean? By the way, do we believe so, that? The question is, mean? so why do you pray? God cannot, will not? So, do we believe that? Is that a premise? Well, the question is, I don't care what we believe, what the Raman believe. So what the Raman? So at the, so at the end, ah, okay, okay. so at the end, David, you read the article? With Fox? Yes. Read it again. <laughs> he quotes all the contradictions over here. Free will. Does man have free will? You want to read about free will? Contradictions. Free will. Does he have free will, not have free will? Altman has a great article, Altman, the master, a great article on um, divine providence and free will in Bahia, in, in Sa'aja, Bahia, and the Rambam. Oh, wow. Okay, we'll wow, make his cup view. Yeah, I want to read that. Like, that, that sounds... Okay, and he, and he quotes all the sources. He quotes all the sources, and at the end, you see, the Rambam has sources you cannot change what you're going to do. You are pre-programmed. That's the Arab thing. In one, in one place, the Rambam says it. Then the other says something else. Contradictions. You have contradictions. You have, so that's another example. Read those. The contradictions you're talking about are the contradictions between Mishnah Torah and... No! Here. So what is there a does he say anything in the Moran of about the efficacy of prayer? Efficacy of prayer? Yeah. Uh, no. No, nothing. No hints? Nothing. No hints. So read the article. You read the article. You'll see what Fox says. So why did he pray at the end? Yeah, why? Did he only pray because the Hamon needed? Or you read the last two pages of Fox's article that David and I, David Azar and I read. Those two pages, he tries to explain why the Rambam prayed. Because well, the end. Because it's not like Rambam North, it's the next weaning away process. I would say no. The Rambam, because there's a human need to pray. Fox is a traditionalist. He prayed, and he's as Fox and as Tversky and as Kellner. At the end, say that you got to put the whole life and practice together as one unity. 
Davidson as well. So, it's interesting how that intellectual world were kind of so struck by the Straussian stuff took 30 years to respond. And Fox's great insight, as is Davidson's, and say, look at the man. The man kept mitzvot, the man did things f- through free will, and the man did all this stuff. So at the end, they have to resolve these contradictions in a certain way, and they all believe that Strauss went, at the end, too far. To, to, this, to this very day, Shlomo Penis, uh, Berman, Lawrence Berman, and Strauss are all naturalists. They interpret the Rambam naturalistically, which is now, that was a school of thought of 30, 40, 50 years ago. Shlomo Penis, Strauss, uh, Lawrence Berman, all those. Now, the other side caught up, the traditionalists, and we're going to say, no, that look at the whole man in his right, take them all seriously. Mishnah Torah, take seriously. Take David, take, uh, take uh, his prayers, take all that seriously, and figure out who the Rambam really was. So this is the reaction by Kellner, by Tversky, by Davidson, by Arthur Hyman, who's in between kind of both worlds. And at the end, you got to put it all together. The man prayed. Kellner wrote also? Yeah. Is he, oh, much, but he's only a. Um, I'd say I would say. So, so therefore, all of these people are rebelling against this Straussian, Shlomo Penis and Lawrence Berman school of thought, and they're saying differently. So you have to figure out which school of thought to follow. Arthur Hyman has a very lovely article in Geshet, but also in. Um, Another book of he lays out the, all the schools, the three schools. The from school, the secular school, and the in-between school, which tries to combine it together. So that's that's a it's a beautiful ten page article. He just puts it out very nicely. Do you read that article? Yeah. On this how to read more than so to speak. You did. I gave it to you last year. That blue book? Is it in the blue book? It's not a blue book. It's a white book. Maybe it's blue. I don't know. It's a white book I Give it to you again. So I think you read it. You should have read it. So that, that just gives all the schools of thought. So this very day, they're still going to argue. What do I believe? On creation, on providence, on prophecy, they still argue. There's an article by Nouriel on the same exact thing. Davidson has a great article that she didn't read called the My Mind's Secret Position on Creation in uh, one of the freshers Tversky edited. His Secret Position on Creation. It's interesting because the truth of the matter is, and is it not the truth of the matter, that when you read any text, you really can spin it any which way you want. This way, that way, you add premises, you subtract premises. How do you get to truth? How do you read what something is really all about in any sophisticated work? That's what they did with listening to your lecture also. That's true. It's very true. How do you get it straight in the written form, if you can, as to really say what you really believe in? People, people, oh yeah, people all we could read into it. Every act of reading is an act of interpretation, is it not? There's a great article by Ravadovich, fantastic, called On Interpretation. Every act of hearing, you're interpreting what I'm saying, what anybody is saying. So, whatever you bring to the Baggage. forum of discussion, you're going to interpret in one way or the other. The from guy hears this, the from guy hears that, you selectively perceive, so can you really ever get our truth is really the ultimate end question. So we believe we can, we try to take a holistic view, what he write, how subtle, 
And the firm, firm world missed all of this. At least the Davidsons and the Hymans and the Torskis, they got this school and reacted about against it. The firm, firm world says, ah, this is nonsense, what they said. We don't get that at all. But they took note of it, absorbed it, got it, and reacted to it. And find truth somewhere in the middle. Have a wonderful winter. It was a pleasure being with you. Are you doing, it? You're doing something tomorrow or no? Uh, not tomorrow. Labor Day, Rabbi Zulf. No, I'm not off, but I got other things to do.